Inspiration Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Okay, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Let's get started. If you go back to Revelation 11.5, it's talking about the two witnesses. It says, if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And so if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. All right. So I think there's other explanations to the two witnesses, but look how much this sounds like the, to the Midrash Rabbah on how, what would happen when Israel settled down and their encampment in the wilderness. It says, um, when Israel was roaming from encampment to encampment in the wilderness, the pillar of cloud would sink in the evening, and then the pillar of fire would spring up. <laughs> Big fire, better than 4th of July. The smoke of the burning atop the outer altar would rise straight up, unaffected by the wind. Remember that the angels of the four winds being told to hold back? Why? Because the saints are going to be sealed. What do we know about the smoke of the fire in the wilderness? It went straight up. The wind couldn't affect it. And so you can see how the nations would be looking on and say, oh, these guys are ministers of fire. They thought the Israelites were celestial or something. They got them mixed up with fiery angels like the seraphim because they're seeing all this fire. And they're wondering why the Israelites aren't just being burned up. Well, you'll walk through the fire and you won't be burned. You'll walk through the flood and you won't drown. He's saying, stick with me. And they say the most incredible of these things. It, um, they're looking at Exodus 40, 38. They say, once the ark would settle down, two darts of fire would go from between the two staves of the ark. And so they would go all through the camp and it would just incinerate every snake, every fiery serpent and every scorpion. So that when the Israelites settled down in their camp, they were completely safe. All this fire going on, and the Israelites are completely safe, right? So, like I said, I think there's other explanations to the two witnesses, but I love the relevance because it tells us that we can relax if we're walking and learning what's pleasing to Adonai. Because the fires of the Torah will actually prepare a place for us to encamp under the clouds of glory. And that's what Yeshua said, I go to prepare a place for you. He's preparing a place for us to encamp in clouds of glory. <coughs> and all the while he's doing this, he's burning up the serpent scorpion bugs from hell <laughs> that, that are always tormenting the wicked. It says they have the power to torment men for five months that we can encamp in clouds of glory and that fire will just burn up the serpents. It'll burn up the scorpions. And th they say, this is why the nations looking on thought the Israelites were celestial, that they were ministers of fire and that the Israelites have no idea how terrifying they were to the nations. But see, if you're obedient, if you're walking behind the, you know, the pillar of fire, if you're walking behind the ark, if you're walking in the clouds, you're being obedient and you're protected. 
you're in clouds of glory, you're in Sukkot of glory. And he can destroy the serpents, the serpents and the scorpions. You know, the problem is we want to run out. We want to run our own agenda. But if we'll be patient and we'll, we'll walk with him, there's no reason to believe that he would not do the same for us. When those bugs of Abaddon come flying out that look like horses and serpents and scorpions, remember what happened with Moses and Pharaoh? Pharaoh said, oh, my magicians can make snakes too. And Moses like, your snake can't do what my snake does because <laughs> my snake going to eat your snake. That's what's going on. See this fire that goes out. It's consuming. It's showing instead of deceiving signs and wonders, this is the miracle of Sukkot of glory that we are hidden in the secret place of the Most High. So in our own eyes, just like the Israelites, we might feel like, good grief, we're just wandering around out here. We don't even know what we're doing. It's chaos. You know, you're not lost. You're not lost in the wilderness. Just the opposite is true. You are not lost because, you know, that's what Abaddon means. Thanks. Abaddon means to be lost and desolate. We might look like we're lost and desolate, but the opposite is true. And the longer we walk in obedience, the more we are going to be horrifying to anyone looking on because we're going to gain confidence. We're going to gain boldness. Our faith is going to be built up. We're going to see that time after time, Adonai has upheld us. Our faith will grow. And we see that, oh, wow, yeah. You know what? If I'll just hold my spot here, I don't have to get out there in the strife of tongues. I don't have to get caught up in the conspiracy theories. He's going to hide me in the secret place. I'm not lost. I'm horrifying. Acts chapter 1, verse 9, it says, after Yeshua had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. Well, how many angels were guarding the way back to the Garden of Eden? Two. Were they terrifying? Yes. But these two men don't seem to be terrifying at all. They're just described as two men in white clothing. It's all a matter of perception. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Yeshua who has been taken up from you into heaven, he will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He was going to prepare a place for us in the clouds. What is hidden is good. See, if, if you're a true disciple, there's nothing that terrifying about being obedient in order to go back into the garden because you're no longer sick. It's sick people who can't go into the garden. They can't go in. You can't take uncleanness in there. You can't take leprosy in there. You can't take sin in there, rebellion and all that stuff. You can't take all that stuff back into the garden. We already know that stuff doesn't stick. Sick does not stick in the garden. So if we want to stick our landing, we just have to trust him. We just have to be obedient to him. Self-discipleship growing in our faith. So he doesn't need to keep us away from our inheritance. That encountering those watchmen, those sovevim, it goes back to Genesis 2, 10 through 12. It's the Garden of Eden. It says, now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it divided 
and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Tov. Remember, what is hidden is good. We were hidden in the garden prophetically from Genesis 2. It's the land of good gold. Because what is hidden is good. He is going to hide us in the secret place. It says the gold of that land is tov. It's good. The delium and onyx stone are there. The delium and onyx stone are where good gold is. Well, the description of the rivers of Eden, savav, they encircled the Eden of good gold. That describes the night watchman, the sovevim, they're circling Jerusalem. So they can announce the end of the exile by proclaiming the Moedim. They know that very soon, Israel and her companions, they're going to ascend. They're going to go up into the cloud like Yeshua. The angel said, he's going to come back just like that. <laughs> it's not that far away. He didn't go to Pluto. It's just that the cloud does what? This cloud is going to descend. It's going to take him up, and you're going to be concealed. The Garden of Eden is not that high above. It's just above. It's a realm. Well, in the Garden of Eden, where this good gold is, that which is hidden is good. It says the onyx stone is there. Remember the high priest, he had onyx stones on his shoulder pieces. Six tribes of Israel inscribed on one, six tribes of Israel inscribed on the other. The 12 tribes of Israel will ascend back into the garden because that's the place of tov, good gold. What is hidden is good. And then it says delium was there too. What, we, what do we know about delium? Is the manna in the wilderness? It had the appearance of Delium, it's a perfect food from a perfect garden. It's a safe place. It's a concealed place. It's a good place. And at the proper time, we will know the way. In fact, I think we already know it. It's just growing in our faith enough to keep walking in what we already know. And onyx, if you'll remember, it's a black stone. But the name of it in Hebrew, shoham, it means to turn white. What were the seven assemblies promised? I will give you a white stone. Keep your faith. Be faithful unto death. If you are faithful unto death, then death is not something to be feared. The second death has no power over you. The first death is just a promotion where you're going to be secreted away. You're going to be concealed under the altar where I mean, that place is smoking, right? but it's a safe place. Whether we live here or whether we're living with him once we cross over, what is hidden is good. Our Messiah is good. And he's going to hold us safe. And at some point, I'm hoping what we all realize is that the perception of the people around us should be changing. Over time, it should be changing. Because as they watch us begin to walk in fire, to speak words of fire, that we will become more and more terrifying to the wicked. 
the more Torahifying you are, the more terrifying you are to the wicked because you're calling out the darkness. You're walking in your purpose. You're walking in your calling. And the fact that you are a light, like one of those seven assemblies, that it was a lamp. The, the more of the, the Torah is a light, the commandment is a lamp. The more you walk in the light and the lamp, the more you expose the darkness. And even though you are in the wilderness of the peoples where it doesn't feel like there's a beautiful Mishkan, you know, just one camp over, doesn't matter how you feel about it. It's there. He's assembling us already into his presence. And if you can keep that faith, remember it's one more day, one more day. You can do it one more day. Look how many things could have been achieved if you'd held out one more day. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to hold out one more day. And then tomorrow we're going to hold out one more day. And then the day after that, we're going to hold out one more day. That's what we have to remember. And by now you've figured out that uh, we're going to take a look at Pinchas, but I'm going to dip liberally into the, the lessons from this week that we've been doing online. Of course, welcome to everybody who's, who's joining us on the live stream. Uh, but the Torah portion is Pinchas, and we really don't have a Pinchas if we don't go back one Torah portion, right? You, you can't really understand the, the beginning of Pinchas uh, if you don't understand the sorcery that nearly took place, nearly took place. And that's something that we find out. There is a fine line between that which is holy and pure, those... Um, the particular language of purity, the objects of purity, the rituals of purity. Notice how closely when something is unclean and wicked, how close it tries to get. And that, that's the challenge. It seems like that religious word trappers are the worst. Have you ever noticed that? When somebody tries to trap you into a particular uh conversation, they want you to word something a particular way, or they're wording it to you a particular way. And then they set up this false dilemma. It's either yes or no, you agree with me. Now, well, I might agree with part of what you say, but you're leaving a whole lot out right there. But you want me to just sign my name to a yes or no proposition here. And I'm not going to do that. You know, scripture doesn't usually do that. If you look at the interactions that Yeshua has with religious people, he doesn't allow himself to be caught up in those word traps of religion. Those are the worst. People who know the word are the worst because they're the ones who know how to twist it very subtly. And all of a sudden, you, you find yourself in the religious word trap. So we know that probably we didn't go from point A to point B with the Moabite and the Midianites. There was probably a step in between that involved talking. The, the men didn't jump, well, we won't be too graphic about where they jumped to, but <laughs> they did not go from a, a holy gathering in the wilderness, you know, these ministers of fire in the Mishkan, they go straight from there into eating idolatrous meals and committing fornication and adultery with the Moabite women. It, there were in-between steps. It was gradual, and I'm sure... It started with a dialogue. And notice how, you know, even in, if we look back one 
Tor portion to Balak in the sorcery, look at how he's duplicating. He's got altars. He's got clean sacrificial animals. He's not offering lizards and pigs on the altar. He's offering clean animals on the altar. So if you don't know the commandment, maybe he can pull off this sorcery, drawing on a different realm because you don't know the word. Close enough. Sometimes we say, well, sometimes close enough is not close enough. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. In this case, it was not close enough because we got into sorcery. And so that's um, that was our tip of the week last week with this particular Torah portion. I thought this is a good enough tip. We need to repeat it. And that tip of the week is those who act in the realm of death will often borrow from or imitate the realm of life in order to deceive. And this is a vital component of sorcery or magic. And if you suspect that you're working um, with somebody who has, he's drawing on the realm of death or uncleanness, a lot of times if you just flip their words, you can find out the true intent or the true character of the person. Sometimes it's a matter of just flipping it back and, and the opposite you will find out is the truth when you're dealing with somebody like this. So that's that's just something to be aware of in terms of tactics. Getting caught up in religious words is going to be the tactic from the garden. Uh, everything else flew out of getting into a dialogue with twisted religious words, taking the word of Adonai and twisting it to make it seem like, well, this rebellion will be fine. Seriously, you'll be just like God. Well, no, you won't. <laughs> so rebellion, it, we know that that is like the sin of witchcraft. And that's what witchcraft is. It's a, a method of circumventing what the Holy One has appointed to us. Depending on where we are, who we are, what we are, he says, this is your boundary. This is the way that you work. And when we don't want to work within that boundary, or we desire something outside of that boundary, then we will rebel. And we will break that boundary. And then we will try to accomplish things by drawing on power from a realm that is not ours. And that's pretty much what's going on both ways, whether you're looking at human beings delving into the, the other realms that are not appointed to us at this time, uh, or if you look at those creations, they're created beings, whether we see them as good, evil, or neither one, some of them are null, they're just performing a job. Uh, when they try to cross into our realm without that mission, without that divinely appointed mission, then they also are crossing a boundary and, and they're being rebellious. So if let's say a demon wants to be in you, he's crossing a boundary. But what if you invite him? And see what the Israelites could not be done to them. See, uh, Bilam could not curse them, but they could become a curse. You see how the, that hedge of protection is there? He said, Okay, he'll protect you. He won't allow anybody to curse you. If he hasn't cursed you, he won't allow anybody to place a curse upon you. But what if you decide to become a curse? He won't stop you from that any more than he stopped Adam and Eve from doing what they did. Um, but typically when you're being seduced or tempted into these areas, 
the the seduction will occur with words and often it'll be religious words right we'll twist the actual word to make it say what we want it to say it might involve specific places or times uh, and that's why i pulled out the the feast of dedication so that you could see some of this work here uh, going on using religious words and using an accusation against Yeshua of blasphemy when he flips it on him and takes him to school in hermeneutics. He says, oh, no, you're, you're not reading the text, because if I'm guilty of what you're accusing me of, then you're all guilty, because you are all sons of Elohim. And, and so uh, look out for specific places and times. Uh, Jude, it picks up on that a lot. If anybody ever had an alertness as to the evil that can go on at the appointed times, it was Jude. Uh, the closer you get to Revelation, it seems like the more conscious the apostles are that people will be, they call them what, uh, hidden reefs at your love feasts. Um, there's going to be people who attach themselves or try to attach themselves to you at the appointed times, because remember, they're running this track very closely in order to deceive you. They'll also use ritual and ritual objects. Not everybody who blows a shofar, who has tzitzit dangling from their belt loop is actually walking with you. They might look like that's the way it is on the outside. That's not the way it is on the inside. But typically you're gonna be able to see some sort of resemblance to that which is divinely appointed. Um, but what they're going to eventually show you, if you give them long enough to tell you who you are. It takes time. You have to test the spirits, right? They don't tell you right off the bat. It's it's something that you notice in their character and their behavior over time. And what they're drawing from is unclean or tamay forces. This is why Vayikra, Leviticus is the heart of the Torah. We need to know how to deal with what is clean and unclean, because what that does is it really tweaks out your perception. When somebody is coming to you with what seem to be clean words, but they're actually tamay, you can spot that. Because holiness relies on the realm of purity. Tamay relies upon the realm of death, life, death. It's that simple. So when we're thinking of sorcery or rebellion, just think of it as tapping into forces or trying to manipulate forces that are not permitted to human beings, at least at this time. What he will do with us in eternity, we don't know what our job will be. Will we be equipped to cross into those realms? We'll see. We'll see what we're equipped to do, but that's not our call, and it's certainly not our job to jump into them ahead of time. That, that was one way I heard it um, referred to Adam and Eve in the garden, is that, uh, and I can't remember who said it or where I read it, but I just need a general citation. I can't remember where I said it. <laughs> it's a, where I read it or who said it. But they saw the Garden of Eden as a womb, that Adam and Eve were being prepared to be birthed into a particular calling. But they basically were born too soon. I think that might have been Rabbi Foreman. They were born too soon into a world they were not prepared for. So it's like when you have a premature birth, that that baby is going to struggle to draw a breath of air. That baby is going to struggle to develop an immune system. And in a sense, they're saying that's what happened to Adam and Eve. So from last week's Torah portion, we had a scripture. And as Bilam is trying to curse Israel and having a difficult time, it keeps turning <laughs> into a blessing. 
It says, for there is no divination in Jacob. That's Numbers 23, 23. But following that, here's an interesting verse. It says, behold, the people will arise like a lion cub and raise itself like a lion. It will not lie down until it consumes its prey and drinks the blood of the slain. So if this is what Bilam was seeing, if he's seeing something that fearsome, like a lion rising up to just absolutely tear the prey, now Bilam has a, has a problem. How am I going to curse a lion? Because he's describing among the, the beast kingdom pretty much, you know, the, the king of the jungle. I don't know if he's uh, also king of the, <laughs> the rest of the, the geography, but he's definitely the king. And interesting reason why they call him the king. But here's what it says. Numbers 23, 10 through 11. Who has counted? Remember, this is Bilam. He's looking down into the tents of Jacob. Who has counted the dust of Jacob or the number of the fourth part of Israel? Depending on where he's standing, what, what likely fraction of the camp is he seeing? A fourth. Remember, there's four sides. So he's looking, he's, he's got a vantage point. He says, who can number even this side I'm looking at, much less all this other that's, I mean, I'm, this would be the one closest to him. He says, I can't number this. So imagine how many more tents are in this wilderness encampment. He says, may I die the death of the upright and may my end be like his. Then Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to put a curse on my enemies, but behold, you've actually blessed them. But just preceding that, it says, behold, Israel is a nation that will dwell in solitude and not be reckoned among the nations. That's going to be the characteristic. If we're looking for Israel in the wilderness today, Israel will be a people who do not reckon themselves themselves. This is a self-assessment, in other words. You are self-assessing, and you are saying, I am not like the people around me. Now, that can apply to a lot of things, okay? <laughs> that can apply to a whole lot of weirdness, like definitely not, no, not, not like everybody around me. But this is in a state of holiness. This is a people growing in holiness, learning what it means to please the Lord. And these are the people it was impossible to curse when they're dwelling in that state, when they don't reckon themselves like the nations. Now, you see what happens just following this. Okay, Balaam says, okay, I can't do it to them, but I can make them do it to themselves. So he teaches the Moabite women how to seduce them. The moment that they succumb to that seduction, they have now reckoned themselves among the nations. There's no distinction between a young Israelite man and any other man who might encounter a beautiful Moabite woman. And that's how we have to kind of keep our consciousness like. Sometimes we work so hard to fit in with those around us because we're weird enough already. <laughs> right? We have different holidays. We have a different Sabbath. Um, we definitely have different dietary things that aren't based on good health. So sometimes we say, well, how can I fit in? How can I not draw attention to myself? You can't help it. So don't reckon yourself among the nations. Just reckon yourself as a light to the nations and you got it. So the encampment in the wilderness, this is, we're still looking at the footsteps of Messiah. We're looking at this era that's called the wilderness of the peoples, when the, the 12 tribes would be scattered out there among the nations. Well, what they should retain is 
again, this identity, I don't reckon myself like the people around me. I don't follow the same rules that they do. Now, I do when it comes to something that, that's not going to violate the word itself. But when it comes to the word, I act upon it is written, not I feel I want I think. That's what's going to set you apart. And when Israel encamps like that, no matter where she is, when she sees herself as different from the nations, when they're acting and behaving in an idolatrous and moral way, then there, there's just an element, there's a protection that's placed upon her where she cannot be cursed. You can't curse what the Holy One has not cursed, but you can seduce her out and cause her to become a curse. Remember the trial of the Sota, the woman accused of adultery? If she was guilty and she drank the water, so she became a curse. She became one. She took it inside of herself. So how we encamp, that's important. Remember, as we encamp, so shall our journey be. It wasn't really what Bilam said about Israel that mattered, even though our ears pick up on what people say about us, right? We, we pick up on, you know, when they say ugly things or sarcastic things or demeaning things. <laughs> They notice we're different, and, and I don't know why we're shocked, because it just said, you need to reckon yourself as not like the people around you. You're to be a light to them. So it wasn't what Bilam said that mattered in this act of sorcery. What mattered was what they did. And that's a general principle. As you're looking at, at some sort of oppression from other realms, remember it's not what is said about you, to you, or attempted to be placed upon you that matters. It's what you do that can bring that plague upon you. Um, the, the word of the curse is powerless. If you are not reckoning yourself among the peoples with idolatry and immorality, that curse can't stay there. You're like Teflon. It just slides right off. So how does the enemy make it stick? He seduces you out there. He might use religious words, religious ritual, religious clothes, religious identity. And you'll go out there and you'll just choose to make yourself a curse. You'll commit the sorcery against yourself. Because in that sense, maybe you were tempted, maybe you were shown how to do it, but you were the one who chose to commit the sorcery. Be dabbling in a realm that was not assigned to you. If you were Israel, you have a very high calling. And the, the things that are out here in these realms among the nations, those are not for you to touch. This is how we know you're Israel, because you don't touch them. If you're out there touching everything in the store, <laughs> if you're not reading, is it turkey bacon or is it beef bacon? That's one way of telling. Now, that's just a very plain example. But in all your choices, basically the same thing is going on in your head 24-7. As long as you're awake, even when you're dreaming and sleeping, how many of you have ever dreamt or slept some version of Torah, even if it's an interaction with somebody and it, it was still in your head, you're still processing Torah even when you're asleep, which is good news because when we fall asleep, should we die before we wake, we can still process Torah. Right? He says these words will keep you when you lie down and when you get up till you resurrect, those words will keep you. But we're being begged, don't commit sorcery against yourself. Don't do that. 
So as a review, the the verse we've been working with the past several weeks is from Song of Songs 3.6. And um, again, who is this coming up from the wilderness? We, we have them here. They're, they're pretty much close to the end of the journey, right? By the time they get seduced by the Moabite women, they, they pretty well made it by this point. And so we know we're this close to what's being described here in Song of Songs 3.6. What is this coming up in the wilderness? Like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the scented powders of the merchants. And so something that beautiful, Israel coming up to the land of promise, something this beautiful that smells this good, this orderly, this organized. And now all of a sudden we got the Moabites. We've got the immorality. We've got the idolatry. What broke here is the question. Well, just as a review, let's look at three things here. As Israel comes up from the wilderness, it says they come up with columns of smoke. We could elaborate on this, but in general, the columns can refer to the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, which would have still had the appearance of fire, um, the incense offering altar, uh, and the altar smoke, the sacrificial altar. Remember, it's these are divinely fires. First, he lit the altar of sacrifice. It never goes out. And remember, they have to take the fire from there, the coals from there, to put them on the incense altar. So both of these altars have perpetual fire. And so it was said that those columns of smoke continue to ascend, even though they're covered with cloths for carrying, which would have been pretty incredible. Imagine you're a Moabite or a Midianite or an Amalekite, and you're watching. You're up there, you know, at the top of Scorpion's ascent, looking down, watching these Israelites move. And you can see their altars are still on fire, but they're covered up for the journey which is pretty cool to me. Um, this is they're perfumed with myrrh and frankincense. We know the spices of the altar sacrifices. Um, they had to be, they had that handful of frankincense on them. So again, going back to the altar fires, which represent judgment and then the myrrh. Um, again, this is going to be part of the, the, the spices of the incense that goes up on the incense altar. And then the third thing, if we're looking for Israel in the wilderness, these are the things we need to see. We need to see the, the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, and we need to see a perpetual fire burning on them. In other words, these are people who stay on the altar. Their fire never goes out. Remember, it was divinely lit, and they keep it smoking. They keep a column of smoke going. Even when they're traveling and their destination, you can still identify the fire. And if you'll remember, too, it was said that, um, and I forget which midrash, I might have it on here in another slide, that when the pillar would settle down, whether it was cloud or fire, because remember, they could move at night because one of the pillars was fire. So they didn't need daylight. In fact, it had been cooler at night, but maybe it was cool already in the cloud. But wherever they settled down, not only would the nations see the, the pillar of fire, they would see the altars still on fire. And then they would see uh, the rock that followed them. It would start gushing. And we're talking about a lot of water because uh, they said it drew the boundaries. The water would gush out in such an amount that it would draw the boundary around each tribal encampment. So they knew where each tribe was supposed to settle down. 
And so they didn't have to go that long a ways to go get water. They, you know, didn't have to hike for miles to go get a bucket of water. It was basically just surrounding your camp. And so if this were occurring, even at night, imagine the reflection of the fire from the pillar of fire on the water gushing out and the reflection of the fire on the water. So it would have looked like fire flashing all around the camp. And then they said when the ark would stop, and I would love to have seen this because apparently the Levites weren't under total control. It, like it wasn't their thing to know when to stop. Somehow the ark stopped them. When the cloud was going to stop, they stopped, the ark stopped. And uh, it was said that two darts or two tongues of fire would shoot out from the two tablets in the ark. And it would go out and it would just clear out the scorpions, the serpents, and the fiery serpents from the encampment. So where have you read about cloven tongues of fire before? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing new under the sun, right? But that, that prepared the area so that they could encamp in peace from the fiery serpent. And so... Um, it was like the two tablets. That's the origination of the supernatural fire. Then we can see why cloven tongues of fire would have come down upon their heads because it's the feast of Shavuot. It's the celebration of the giving of the Torah. And then the final thing there is it says with the scented powders of the merchant, depending upon your version, it, it might have a different way of describing it in English, but that's avaka in Hebrew, and it's literally dust, but it it's like the, you know, when you would grind the, the spices for the incense offerings, or when you would grind spices, say for seasoning food, these are the scented powders. They're very fragrant, they're very valuable, and they're typically brought in by a merchant. He's going to specialize in these spices. And so you have this variety of powders, you have this variety of dust, which is kind of where we're going. We've got the dust of Abraham, but then we're going to transfer to the dust of Jacob. What is different about Jacob? He has 12 sons, and each of those 12 sons has a blessing. That particular blessing is all brought together to form the house of Israel, all these scented powders of the merchant. But eventually, remember, those 12 tribes are scattered out. The Apostle James writes his epistle to the 12 tribes who were scattered abroad. The centered powders of the merchant. And, and this is where I say, watch for the deception. Because remember, Babylon the Great has fallen, fallen. The merchants of the earth are just wailing and moaning because all these, these luxury items have been destroyed with Babylon the Great. But what if there's also another merchandise that is not designed to fall. Instead, what if there is a merchandise of the powder merchant that is destined to rise? Babylon falls, but the house of Israel rises. When the house of Israel comes up from the wilderness with the scented powders of the merchant, it's a different kind of merchandise because these are those who have affected the nations around them, they have not been absorbed by. Remember, they didn't reckon themselves among the nations. They 
they maintained who they were. They maintained the fire. They maintained the smoke. They maintained the Torah. They maintained their prayer life, the myrrh and the frankincense. They maintained a sacrificial life, which is the only way you are not going to reckon yourself among the nations. You will have to live a sacrificial life to keep that fire turning and burning. Uh, you have to turn those coals over from time to time, and that's not pleasant. But, but the, the connection that's made here, the centered powders of the merchants, which is avaka, they see as connecting with this root, avak, which means to wrestle. And so what do they do then? They say, oh, let's go back and find you know, another context where this word has been used, and it leads you straight back to Genesis 32, 24, and 25 which is the wrestling match between uh, Jacob and some unnamed either man or angel. He starts out fighting a man, but then toward daybreak, he realizes this is an angel I'm fighting. And he's pretty courageous considering he's fighting an angel. But each of those 12 tribes is said to represent one of those spices based on the gift or the blessings that Jacob placed upon them. And they say that he earned the right to do that, and he prevailed in this wrestling match. So they're connecting the avak, the wrestling match, with the avaka of Israel, the scented powders of the merchant, the special blessings and gifts that Israel contributes to the whole house. Um, and what happened here is seen as a refinement of Abraham's dust. Because remember, Abraham has promised his offspring are going to be like the dust of the earth. That particular type of dust is avak. Not, not avak, afar. Avak is the powder we're working with. Afar, not like in English, you know, wise men from afar, not that kind of afar. <laughs> afar in Hebrew, dust. That sort of dust is considered like... Um, regular just dust in the dirt, earth, and ashes. It's like rubbish, pretty much. Most contexts, it's like rubbish, something under your feet, something that's trampled. And so Abraham was promised that his offspring would be like afar in Genesis 13, 16. They're going to get trampled under foot. Just like, wow, what a blessing there is. <laughs> but this is why we're always talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because each of these is contributing something to who we are as the house of Israel. And by the time we get to Jacob, we see a refinement from the afar, kind of the rubbishy, dirty, earthy children of Abraham. And now they have been refined into the avakah, the scented powders of the merchants. The blessings have been activated upon them. So they see this particular event, Jacob fighting here at the Yavok stream with an angel all night, as the moment we can say that the house of Israel was birthed as a refined, fragrant dust powder of the merchant. Because what is he doing? He's taking those boys. They've been out there being refined in the land of Levan. And now they're crossing back over into their, her their inheritance. They're going back into the promised land. And so there's an element of refinement right here. Jacob's been tested. And in this test right here, 
they say this is exactly where he earned the right to dispense those blessings upon his sons. And so the the key to this, uh, I know there's always a big debate as to who exactly this angel was. Um, I went through a time where I thought, well, this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Yeshua. And then I've read some other things that seem to make just as much sense. And in fact, maybe they make more sense in the context, the full context. So I'm not married to this particular explanation, uh, but the one that, that seems to have a lot of support is that this is Esau's ministering angel, Esau's ministering angel. Now, remember, these angels don't have permission to cross boundaries. So if this is an angel, we're just going to say for the sake of argument, let's say this is Esau's ministering angel. Could he attack Jacob without permission? No. No, it has to be a divinely ordained interaction. If there's something wrong going on there, I think that's where you see Yeshua walking in and casting stuff out. Like you don't have any right to be here. You've crossed your realm, get out. And they recognize they're out of their authority. They're out of their realm and they have to go. We don't always get it that fast. But one thing we notice about this angel is that he has to depart at daybreak. Now, if you'll remember all the symbols we've done through here, we know that night represents an exile, depending on context. But the day or the daybreak represents the end of an exile. So if he's fighting with Esau's angel in the night, he's fighting with Esau's angel in the exile. So if we're fighting with Esau's angel in the exile, and we're still out here in the wilderness of the peoples, we are fighting exactly who John told us we're fighting, the beast, the red one, perfectly consistent with with the rabbinic viewpoint of these verses. And of course, Revelation describes to us the final battle. Uh, when we're going to prevail, when the house of Israel, the house of Jacob is going to be brought back together and crossed over to their inheritance. But this angel says, daybreak is coming. I've got to go. I've got to go. I've got to go. You think, well, why is it so pressing? If you've been fighting all night, what's the big deal if the sun comes up? I mean, he's not a vampire, right? (laughs) He's not going to lose his power when the sun comes up, or is he? If we're looking at those symbols of exile, and coming out of the exile, coming into the kingdom of Messiah, then maybe his power is broken at the daybreak. Maybe his power is broken at the end of the exile. And so we're trying to apply this to us. If we're listening for the footsteps of Messiah, and we recognize we're still in the wilderness of the peoples, then we should expect that in this wilderness, we're going to experience a lot of refinement as well. As children of Abraham, He's going to be transitioning us from afar into avaka, into something that's that's pretty good. Not just trampled underfoot, but something that is fragrant, something that is obedient, something that knows how to move with the Holy Spirit. Stop when the ark stops. Go when the ark goes. Do what the word tells you to do. If the word tells you stop, don't do that, you stop. If the word tells you, get up and go do that, you get up and you go do that. This is the house of Israel coming up from the wilderness. They're going to arise refined because that's what the verse says. Who is this coming up from the wilderness? And 
at this point at daybreak, all the opportunity that the red one has had to deceive us, that's going to be broken. Because remember, his lying signs and wonders are going to be very much like what we would expect from the realm of life and purity, even though his signs and wonders come from the realm of death and uncleanness. Even if he makes fire fall from heaven, if there's something surrounding that event that is contrary to the word, are we going to be deceived? You could be. If, if you're still, you know, just the dust of Abraham, it could, it says, if even the elect can be deceived. But what if you've been refined as the scented powders in the wilderness? You shouldn't be deceived, even if he makes fire fall from heaven, because you know what the true heavenly fire looks like. It's burning in you. So just for the sake of argument, let's say that this was Esau's ministry angel. And this was a divinely ordained appointment that he had to test Jacob during the night of exile. It's going to help us understand why Yeshua had this particular conversation during Hanukkah. It's a feast of dedication. It's winter. It's considered a Sukkot Sheni. Sukkot Sheni. That's going to sound familiar because remember, these aren't just clouds of glory they're walking in. They're also called Sukkot of glory. And Remember, too, that these clouds of glory that they were in in the wilderness, these were thought to have been taken from the heavenly throne itself. And therefore would explain why clothes didn't wear out, shoes didn't wear out, supernatural food was falling out of heaven. Um, it was a semi-supernatural walk. But I think if we run this through some of the context, we'll understand why when he's challenged about are you the Messiah or not? Yeshua starts talking about sheep. He gives a sheep speech. Um, and this is what the rabbinic tradition says about this interaction here at the Yavok stream, that it began with sheep. Now, if we see this sheep speech as occurring during the Feast of Dedication, which is Hanukkah, we have a context for this in rabbinic tradition. You have to think, what is the first century Jewish mind going to know about this interaction? Well, if they're up there at Hanukkah, they understand that, that one of the, the guideposts of Hanukkah is it was thought that the Mishkan and the wilderness was completed on the 25th of Kislev. Now, they didn't inaugurate it until the 1st of Nisan. There's a, a window in here where everything is being prepared, but they thought it was completed on the 25th of Kislev. So asking Yeshua during the Feast of Dedication, are you the Messiah or not? They're, they're presenting a background. They say, okay, if you're Messiah, then what you should be doing is gathering these 12 tribes, gathering the scented powders in the wilderness, and then you should be destroying the red one and then you should be bringing us up together. You should be the king, the conquering king. If you're Messiah, then it's your job to fight this battle against Edom, which they believe was Rome. Fight the battle with the red one. You have to do what Jacob did. Remember, Jacob fought all night. He fought the exile as a proto-prophecy. And they say, this is what King Messiah has to do. He has to fight. With Esau's angel, the red one, he has to prevail over the beast 
and then gather the lost sheep of the house of Israel and their companions. And so if you're the Messiah, Yeshua, then show us where the 12 tribes are encamped here. Show us how you're going to bring them over into the land to their inheritance. Show us how you're going to gather them around the Mishkan so that the presence can dwell among us. And he's like, how many times I would have gathered you, folks? Are you not getting this here? I've been trying to gather you. But that would have been something in their context, that this is the job of Yeshua, or the King Messiah, to be this Mishkan in the clouds, to gather Israel into the Sukkot of glory, to bring them up from the wilderness. And so that night that the angel appears to Jacob at the Yavok stream, the, the Midrash says that he appeared to Jacob at first, and this is where we can see, like, knowing what a Jewish mind was thinking during the Feast of Hanukkah uh, helps us a whole lot. They say this uh, angel of Esau appeared first as a shepherd and a robber chief, a shepherd and a robber chief. Now, if that weren't so particular, we could pass it over. And here's what it says. This one, Jacob, had sheep, and that one, the angel, had sheep. The angel said to Jacob, bring across the Yavok stream what is mine, and I will bring across what is yours. It says the angel brought across Jacob's flock in the blink of an eye. In the blink of an eye. Where have we heard that before? Who is this coming up from the wilderness? Right? That's a resurrection reference in the blink of an eye. And so again, the Yavok stream, it's not huge, by the way. <laughs> you, you don't necessarily need to take your shoes off to cross the Yavok stream. It's, it's not a huge thing, but it is symbolic of this divide of crossing back and forth. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.